Hi everyone, welcome to the Physionic Podcast. If you're not familiar with who I am, my name is Nicholas Verhoeven. I'm currently pursuing my PhD in molecular medicine, and I have a background in science that goes beyond just my uh, pursuit of my PhD. But uh, today's topic, I decided to limit it to just one thing because I wanted to go into some depth with this because it is a really momentous occasion. Uh, for the scientific community and really humanity as a whole. And that topic is looking at the brand new uh, results of a genetic engineering experiment in humans. So one year ago, there was a individual, actually there are a few different individuals, but this particular story is focused on one individual that suffered from suffers from sickle cell anemia. And I'll go into that in just a second, what that is and whatnot. And this individual, there's, when it comes to sickle cell anemia, you, you essentially have no shot. Uh, you, it's something that can't be fixed by, you know, like drugs, for example. So it's something that's lifelong and it can be incredibly painful. And it can also shorten your life. Uh, quite considerably. So this kind of issue is not something that's going to be able to be fixed by traditional medicine. As such, something like genetic engineering comes in, and that's certainly a hot-button topic because it does bring up a bunch of moral issues, especially when you're talking about kids, but uh, even certainly when you're talking about adults. And this person is an adult that is suffering from this particular condition. Now, as medicine is progressing forward, uh, CRISPR is one of the big gene editing tools. It's not the only gene editing tool that scientists have, but it is uh, one of the most popular, probably the most popular at this point. I think it was invented or first uh, kind of discovered, or I suppose maybe published in 2012. So it's really new when it comes to kind of the scientific consensus, the scientific community. So what medical doctors decide to do with, uh, with the help of medical scientists is use this technology that we use in cells and we use in tissues, in like animal tissues, and decided, well, let's try to do this in a human being. And of course, had to have consent and all that stuff. So uh, they ended up trying to help this woman that was suffering from sickle cell anemia. So what is sickle cell anemia? As I break this down, I'll, I'll be breaking this down into a few different sections so that we can really come to understand exactly what's going on here. So what is sickle cell anemia? That's essentially a genetic disorder, as I've alluded to already, uh, that leads to a change in the morphology, otherwise stated as the shape of a particular protein known as hemoglobin in red blood cells. So our bloodstream is filled with millions and millions and millions of these red blood cells and red blood cells have a few different functions, but certainly the most, I mean, almost clearly the most important function is their ability to deliver oxygen to our tissues as well as remove 
carbon dioxide from our tissues and from our bloodstream and bring it back to the lungs. So it's kind of like if you think of like a motor, it's like the oil almost. The blood is the oil and it allows for those red blood cells to move from the lungs to throughout the entire system, throughout the circulatory system, to all the different tissues. And then from there, uh, you, you have this recycling process as it exchanges oxygen for CO2, and then it takes that CO2 and brings it back to the lungs, and then it dissociates from the uh, red blood cell and goes into the lungs, and then we end up uh, breathing it out. So that it's a, it's a pretty complex but really interesting exchange system that's a, a incredibly cool, I think, incredibly cool part of human physiology. So anyway, individuals with sickle cell anemia have a genetic abnormality in that the hemoglobin protein is dysfunctional and it doesn't function as well. And on top of that, the red blood cell, because it is primarily made up of hemoglobin within it, uh, it leads to a sickle-like shape of the red blood cell. So a red blood cell should be relatively round it's one of the roundest kind of oval like cells and what that shape allows it to do is be able to move through really tight areas of our circulatory system more specifically uh, these tiny venules and capillaries that are at the very bed of our tissue so right when you're getting right next to uh, a series of cells you need to get to a really mi microscopic a, a minute level of exchange of these cells so sometimes you have these alleyways that are that can only fit one cell now if you have sickle cell anemia that can be really painful because sometimes these blood cells don't have the ability to kind of compress themselves together and then to decompress themselves on the other side of a blockage or a particularly tight uh, alleyway or uh, vessel. So with sickle cells, sometimes these cells can get stuck in those areas and that can lead to a blockage and that can lead to uh, serious pain. And that's why these individuals experience certain attacks. They're essentially and colloquially called attacks. So. Uh, yeah, so it's it's not something, it's certainly something that can be debilitating and uh, incredibly difficult to live with. So clearly the attacks themselves are serious, but beyond that, it's also a matter of the function of the actual red blood cells. So this protein that's inside of them, again called hemoglobin, uh, I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit. So let's say you've got a red blood cell that's at the lungs and the lungs have just taken up like you've just breathed in <gasps> you've just taken up a bunch of oxygen into your lungs the alveoli that are there allow for the exchange of that oxygen from the atmosphere into which is technically still your lungs uh, the inside of your lungs allows the exchange of the oxygen molecules into the bloodstream. Now that occurs because the hemoglobin molecule or protein allows for the exchange of that oxygen. So once you get this crossover event of oxygen moving from the lungs into the bloodstream, 
the oxygen will then enter and associate with this hemoglobin protein. So this hemoglobin protein will hold on to four, I believe that's right, four different oxygens. And that's what would be called uh, the relaxed form of this hemoglobin protein. So it changes its conformation, it changes the shape of itself to accommodate these four molecules of oxygen. This is called oxyhemoglobin. So then this oxyhemoglobin in a uh, higher pH environment, that's another factor that plays into it that allows for that oxygen to associate with hemoglobin, will this cell, this red blood cell containing now this uh, oxygenated hemoglobin will then move to the tissue. So let's say it goes to, uh, we'll just say like a muscle cell, or but it can be any, it's going to end up going to, to every every cell. And let's say it goes to a muscle cell, then what happens is the environment around that muscle cell is different from the environment that the lungs were offering the red blood cell. So the red blood cell will then have this different environment which will be a lower pH, so more acidic, and this will tend to be higher in CO2 because the muscle cell is dumping CO2. And this leads the hemoglobin to, ch to shift, to change its conformation, its shape, to a tense form. This tense form then allows the dissociation of the oxygen, and the dissociation of oxygen then moves from the red blood cell into, well, the muscle cell in this situation. And this could be true of neurons, this could be true of hepatocytes in the liver. I mean, any cell, this is how it works. You get this exchange of oxygen through this system in this change of environment. So at this point then, because of this change in shape, uh, that allows CO2 then to climb aboard this hemoglobin and then take its ride, its recycling ride back up to the lungs where you get this exchange. And then of course, the, the process just continues to repeat itself. Now with people with sickle cell, this process is heavily impacted because the hemoglobin molecule is mutated or the protein is, is mutated. And that's because the mutation arises from the fact that the genetic sequence that uh, allows for the expression of that protein is mutated. So what do you do for that? Well, like I said, maybe there are some drugs that might be helpful, but there's nothing that's gonna actually cure the problem. So here's what the researchers did. And I, I will have this linked uh, in terms of a short article on the topic for you to to kind of peruse over to read over uh, just so you can get a little more details on this specific uh, situation this case study so this woman had uh, sickle cell anemia and then they ended up using as i alluded to earlier crispr which is a genetic engineering technique a really popular one now and it's really precise and it's really powerful it's an incredibly powerful technique it ended up winning the nobel prize for three individuals uh, that were behind its discovery and its use so the idea here is that they took out bone marrow cells from this woman and i'm assuming what they did is they plated them 
meaning that they put them on cell culture dishes. And I'm not, I'm fuzzy on all the details because they don't actually go into any of the details, but I'm just kind of pulling on my education in, in the field that they took bone marrow cells and put them on a plate or somehow preserved them. So they had uh, likely, I mean, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these cells. And these cells are uh, stem cells. So they are uh, hemopoietic stem cells, meaning that they can be turned into erythrocytes, which are red blood cells. So with these particular stem cells, then the researchers use CRISPR to change the genetic code within those stem cells. So those stem cells were expressing a mutated form of, or were going to express a mutated form of the hemoglobin molecule protein. I keep using those uh, interchangeably because they are. Uh, so it's, it's creating this mutated form of the hemoglobin protein. And we don't want that obviously, because that's the problem. You know, once those turn into, once those go through a process called differentiation from stem cells into red blood cells, then you got problems because they're, they are starting to produce this mutated form of hemoglobin. So the researchers took this CRISPR-Cas9 system and they ended up adding it to the cells and they use what's called a guide RNA. And if you've read a little bit about CRISPR, you probably have heard this before, but this RNA, this guide RNA, is essentially, essentially as, it, as it says, it's a guide, as in it uh, is able to distinguish out of the entire genome of that cell, which is the entire genome of that person, within those genes there is a specific section that is associated with this hemoglobin molecule so this guide rna has just a small section of it that will be able to recognize just that one site of the hemoglobin gene and will be able to bind to it so now we have specificity now this this protein that's attached to this guide RNA will allow uh, it to bind to that section, to that, to that mutated, at this point mutated, uh, hemoglobin molecule. And then the protein, which is called a nuclease, will be able to cut the mutation, either cut the mutation out, which doesn't actually do a whole lot in this situation, because uh, then in that case, you're not you're just cutting the mutation out, but you're not replacing it with something that's beneficial. You want the actual complete sequence. You don't want, uh, you know, cutting the mutation out will still leave a mutation by what's called a deletion. So instead of having a different reading sequence of that gene, uh, you have a deletion. So that's not exactly very helpful because once the cell starts reading the new gene, it'll be reading a an incomplete gene and therefore it'll create an incomplete hemoglobin protein we can't have that either so technically what you would do in that situation is have the crispr uh, cut or the cas9 cut but then you add 
on top of that the full gene or you you add a section of the gene that that it requires and then you hope that the 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 cell will use its repair machinery to repair its dna and incorporate that free that free dna that the researcher has added so you're adding a uh, complete gene then to the sequence of dna but that's that's how you would typically do something like this but that's not exactly what they did so what they did was they actually wanted to restore an old gene so instead of necessarily fixing the adult hemoglobin gene what they did was they tried to restore what's known as a fetal hemoglobin so it is a hemoglobin that's expressed during maturation uh, when you're when you're when you're not born yet so when you're a fetus this particular hemoglobin gets expressed and it's different it's a different gene sequence compared to the adult hemoglobin which is what she's suffering from and what we express so what the researchers were trying to do is liberate this gene to try and convince the cell to start expressing more of this fetal hemoglobin which actually gets turned off uh, and when it gets turned off obviously then it turns on the adult hemoglobin gene to start using that once we're born and and we we start growing so they use the same system of of trying to unlock this particular fetal hemoglobin gene and they were hoping for about a 20 percent increase in the production of this fetal hemoglobin which would be likely enough for her to live a comfortable life i mean certainly with a lot of deficiencies in terms of like it, it would certainly affect your exercise capabilities but it would certainly bring about some level of comfort uh, maybe even lessen the amount of attacks that she she suffers now with something like this this happened a year ago and we're just now getting the follow-up i mean the day that i'm recording this podcast is the day that they've released um uh to to the news what happened with this whole thing and so so the idea is at this point that these cells are plated and then they take the cells and they put them back into her and then they hope that this genetic mutation this that they have done this this genetic engineering i should say uh has taken to at least a majority of the cells because you're not going to affect it's not going to work on a hundred percent of the cells but you hope that it's going to be affecting enough of the cells that then you get the production of these now red blood cells that are genetically engineered to specifically express this fetal hemoglobin as opposed to the uh, adult hemoglobin which is the one with the mutation so they're hoping for a 20 percent increase in this fetal hemoglobin or this functional hemoglobin and what they found is that they ended up getting a 46 percent increase in this fetal hemoglobin as a matter of fact 81% of the cells that they uh, that they genetically engineered ended up or tried to genetically engineer turned out to be genetically engineered, which is a phenomenal number. Uh, and it was far better than they had hoped for. As a matter of fact, it was so good that 
a year later, she doesn't have symptoms. Uh, she's no longer getting attacks. She feels uh, better in terms of she's not as tired because obviously oxygen delivery is a big, big factor. You talk to any person who's anemic, just generally anemic, uh, they have uh, trouble with being tired. So it's a pretty incredible thing that scientists and uh, doctors have been able to, to pull off here. And it really raises the question of if we're going to start seeing more of this, uh, specifically when it comes to really dangerous diseases, things that are clearly going to end up uh, shortening a person's life, or if it leads to excruciating pain, or you know, it, it leads to a life that's not worth living to that person. If we can start maybe manipulating some of these genes so that uh, we can change their genetic code and see if we can start to coax the cells to start expressing uh, certain genes that we want them to express. So really cool. I mean, so, so cool. And But this is limited so far, and I'm sure this will change in the future, but this is limited to highly proliferative, highly proliferative cells, meaning we're talking about stem cells here. So these are highly plastic. They can turn into all kinds of other cells. And in this situation, you're getting the, the mass production of the, these red blood cells. So I'll be curious uh, if this continues in, you know, for her betterment, and I imagine that it will. I can't imagine a scenario where it wouldn't. Uh, but and don't get me wrong, it's not like it healed everything completely, but it massively, massively improved her quality of life and uh, doesn't seem like there are any uh, serious side effects as a result, or at least not that, not any that were reported. So hopefully you found this informative, uh, really cool as I did. You know, I like to nerd out to this kind of stuff. So to, to see genetic engineering being used for uh, a really positive cause is uh, is interesting, but it certainly brings up a moral issue. So some of the ethics behind it, and I'd be, uh, if you have any thoughts on this, I'd actually be really interested in hearing kind of your ethical uh, ideas, because I know, uh, you know, this, you know, this is inevitably probably going to end up continuing to, to push forward, and maybe eventually it will start affecting, like, children, you know, like the, the idea of quote-unquote designer babies, right? So I'd be interested in your take if, if you have one. And uh, with that said, I will catch you next time. Have a good one, guys. See ya.